Hey, it's Broken Office Chair, a podcast produced by Alternatives. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native, first-generation Salvadoran Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to speak candidly about their experiences as people of color in their various professions. In the episodes, they'll address topics such as issues in the nonprofit sector, racial equity, DEI in practice, and much, much more. So stay tuned. All right. So today I am joined by Lule, who writes the blog nonprofitaf.com. He is the former executive director of RVC, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by supporting leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Same. So I want to kick it off. I know that we sent you some questions, but I want to kick you off by telling you that we have to give you credit for the name of this podcast. Oh, really? Yes. It was inspired by one of your blogs or a couple of your blogs. Um, So Monica, our development director was like, we need to call it because she's the one who told us all about your blog. And she was like, we have to call it broken office chair as a symbol of everything that's wrong with nonprofits. And then she referenced your blog. Thank you. I am honored. That is, that's really great. Made my whole day. (laughs) And so we laughed about it too, because we took a vote on our staff for names and it also just won. So everybody just loved the rationale behind it. So I just had to let you know that. Oh, To kick it off, though, you have in your at Alternatives, we're really into astrology, and (laughs) we chat about it all the time, and I even, we make a lot of jokes about it, and so when you put in your bio that you're a Pisces, obviously everybody's like honed in on that, and so the, our first question is like, how does that influence the way that you show up in the world? You know, I have not been asked an astrology question before, so this is very exciting. Uh, Yes, I I am a Pisces. I'm a very proud Pisces, and we Pisces are the best signs in in the zodiac. I totally disagree, but I know which what sign are you, Bessie? I'm a Virgo. Virgo, you're so uptight. (laughs) You're just like all banal and just like just you know. (laughs) I don't know if that helps or hurts in an ED position, but continue. It probably helps, you know, if you want to be boring as an ED. <laughs> I did not show up to be a talk today. <laughs> no, Pisces are great. We're like, you know, we're like, we're kind and compassionate and creative and intuitive and humble and modest. It's like all the great things. So that's how it helps me show up. <laughs> Have you noticed if there is a best type of sign that makes a good ed or in a good board member huh i don't know i mean i do gotta give props to uh the the uh the earth signs the virgos and the capricorns because y'all are very well organized right and like get stuff done with your to-do lists and your budget and all that stuff so i think yeah (laughs) (laughs) sure So yeah, you want to be all organized and get stuff done as an ED, then fine. If you want to be visionary, you need like a water sign, you know? Yeah. 
fun fact, I didn't do this intentionally, but so I'm a Virgo. My finance director is a Capricorn and my senior director is a Taurus. But then my development director is a Cancer and my program director is a Scorpio and our assistant is a Pisces. Oh, that's a great combo. I'm, I'm so, kind of worried about the program director, though, being a Scorpio. Scorpios are vengeful. Yes, yeah. she has a little bit of a temper on her. Mm, yeah. Just a little. They hold grudges. They do. Yeah. She has the intensity of a Scorpio. <laughs> that's, that's my rising sign, is Scorpio. So that was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. What is your moon Scorpio. sign? It is it's Scorpio. And so I seem all nice and sweet, but I will stab people. I, <laughs> so my rising is a Capricorn. Oh, oh great. So <laughs> I think it's helpful because it so makes me look boring. Um, it makes me look competent. <laughs> yes. I'm sure you get lots of stuff done, Bessie, with your to-do lists and hold on. System. Big three, right? So uh -huh. we have sun sign uh rising and your moon. What so your moon's a Scorpio too? I don't know what my moon is. See, I think no, my moon you, is also a Scorpio. If you were a Virgo, you would have showed up prepared for that. <laughs> no, I'm a Pisces. I just go on my intuition, you know? Just like, I always, <laughs> whatever I feel. I feel like I might be a Cancer. In the moon. I don't know. That's, we'll go with that. I feel like that is a very Pisces thing to say. <laughs> we, um, so I always say that my one saving grace in my personal life is that my moon is in Gemini. So it tempers down everything else. Yeah. Geminis can be very fun. Not always dependable, but they're fun. Yeah, I think some people would say the same thing about me. <laughs> Except at work when my Virgo and Capricorn show up strong. We should just have an astrology podcast, you know. Astrology. I am <laughs> totally down with this. And Deanna would love it because Deanna pulled up everybody's charts within the last <laughs> couple of weeks to ensure to basically read all of our personalities and figure out what she was dealing with <laughs> yeah she sounds like a capricorn <laughs> pisces she's a pisces she's a pisces i know oh, she's something right now <laughs> yeah yeah deanna is my favorite among all of y'all just so you know maybe. you know you're gonna break monica's heart when she listens <laughs> to this podcast. is she a pisces no, she's a cancer. So well, she's tell her like, come back when she's a Pisces. Then she can be the favorite. Yeah. Uh, you know what, though? She's like second favorite in everything. She has the middle child syndrome, hardcore. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to rub this in. <laughs> so going into work, though, um, I'm just going to ask you, like, what made you kick off, kick off this blog? Yeah, it was a funder. It was one of our funders who asked me to write from a uh, grantee's perspective. And I thought, oh, it's a funder. I can't say no. You know, you can't say no to a, a funder when they request something, right? Because of the power dynamics. So I decided to write for them as one of their grantees. I wrote a guest blog post. But I wanted it to be funny because I think we have so much, so much academic stuff already. Mm -hmm. So I decided to make it a humorous blog post about, ironically, about like broken office chairs and how we hoard things in nonprofit. Like we would just like, save stuff because we don't we have this like scarcity mentality where someone's like hey i have eight thousand number two pencils would you take it and we're like yeah i'm sure we can use it in our after school program or something 
So we end up with like thousands of coloring pencils and math um, notebooks and all, all sorts of stuff. And I wrote a blog post about that. And after a while, it just kind of spun out, you know, and I, I started writing more and more blog posts that were funny. And I think people like them. And so I, it spun off into nonprofit um, with balls before it became nonprofit AF. Um, no, I think that one of the, because I was pointed to it at the beginning of my journey at Alternatives, and I think that it resonates so much with folks because it's like somebody saying what we all feel in these positions and have historically been taught to be scared to say. Yeah, I think our sector is full of very nice, brilliant people, but we are oftentimes just frozen with fear because we're we're afraid of losing our donors. We're afraid of losing funding. We're afraid of offending our clients and the community members. There's a lot of fear in the sector. Have you experienced any repercussions once you started this blog? Because you've been saying some pretty controversial things on there. I feel like you say it much better than I do because I don't have as much humor when I'm angry. Um, <laughs> but that's that Capricorn thing, I think, that we were talking about earlier. Um, but have you experienced any backlash? Not not really, not externally. Ironically, it's always been the, the, the few times that I had pushback was from my own board members when they were like, we're afraid that what you're, you're saying is going to, to end up costing us in terms of funders getting offended. And yeah, sometimes the funders get offended and they're like, you know what, like, I can't believe you said this. But like, I don't point out individual funders you know, until recently, right? At least not on the blog. But I'm like, hey, look, funders, like this, this is what you, some of you do and it's, it's not helpful. But I'm not like, hey, XYZ Foundation, like you need to do this and you suck at this or whatever. Generally, that doesn't happen until later when I'm on Twitter and I have cra hashtag crappy funding practices, right? But the mm -hmm. blog itself, it's very general about what's going on in our sector. And so a few of the funders who do get fragile about that, um, yeah. And you know, I think there's a few who've expressed that they were disappointed or frustrated at some of the things that I say. Or they use things like, well, why don't you propose solutions? And I'm like, we do, I do propose solutions. It's just that I have something I, I came up with called solutions privilege, where people who are really privileged, they don't actually see the solutions that would challenge their privilege. So if you're like, well, my solution is this, you know, like they don't actually, they cannot register the solution. Mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of these funders are always like, why don't you propose solutions? And I'm like, yeah, I have proposed solutions, but you need to. You know, it's like pay more taxes, <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, but overall, though, no one has like not given funding or uh, removed funding because of something I said. No, it makes me think of that. If you're a little sensitive, it makes me think of the song. You probably think this song is about you. Yeah. So if you're a little upset, you may need to examine your own practices there for a second. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think funders... Actually, overall, I, I do think a lot of funders appreciate the feedback because, because of the power dynamics, we're not really honest with them oftentimes, mm -hmm. right? And so something that I always hear from funders is we, I just never know if the nonprofits I'm working with are telling me the truth because, you know, like they could be just saying things that, I, that they think I want to hear because they don't want to lose funding. And that does happen, right? We, we kind of, we kind of do that. And so when I say stuff, a lot of the funders, I do get good feedback from funders who are like, you know, we really appreciate you saying that because we never considered it that way before. 
I, it's interesting though, because I think funders teach you to not be honest. Um, we had yeah. a situation while we were still in the pandemic where we, uh, there was a funder, a lot of funders removed their goals, their reporting criteria, all these things that I'm like, you could have been done, have done that. <laughs> but um, one funder in particular, before everybody else was pushing for us to set a certain number of young people served. And we were like, we're not making those commitments right now because our staff is still remote. It's still um, like, I think they were asking us about like in-person services specifically. And we're like, we're not going to make that commitment. Um, we don't want to put our staff at harm's way, these other methods work, et cetera. And they kept pushing it and they kept pushing it. And one of the things they said to me was, well, well, everybody else has committed to something and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do it. And they pulled their funding. Oh, I'm sorry, Bessie. What it assholes. Was, right. And it was really early, like I said, really early on in our, because what has happened at Alternatives is that we have pivoted to being a lot more outspoken since I came on board, which was in the last, oh God, almost five years now. And so it was like a change of pace for everybody to learn this. And I think I be, started becoming more um, outspoken a little bit uh, about a year and a half in. And of course it coincided with everything else was going on, that was going on, but it also, cause I came on board in 2018, end of 2018, but it was always in our plan to be this way. And so it was one of our first site visits in which we were like um, saying these things. And then the first thing we do is get shut down. And so it would have been really easy to just not do it anymore. Yeah, I'm glad that you did not let that deter you because I feel like we need to be a lot more outspoken in the sector. We're going to address the systemic issues that we're set out to address, right? We can't just be beholden to funders who are wonderful. I mean, many of them are wonderful people, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are the least knowledgeable people in mm-hmm. the entire sector. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, like just talking about racial diversity and stuff among foundation trustees and board members and staff and so on. Yeah, just that alone means that you don't have the same level of lived experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are most powerful are like the trustees who are mostly white people and they are even less knowledgeable. They are never there for these conversations. So for these folks actually have a bearing on what we do as people who are actually on the ground connected to the community. I think that is quite ridiculous. And we've been way too nice. And the more nice we are, the more we perpetuate the system. So I'm really glad that you and alternatives and, you know, like are actually speaking out and being being bold about this. That is, I appreciate that. Um, That is what a lot of what has helped us start this podcast and other events that we have really challenging other EDs to speak up because it still resonates with me that other, what other executive directors was basically weaponized against us. Like all the other EDs did that. Therefore you should too. And I think that happens a lot where folks agree. And I'm like, I had a conversation with somebody else recently and I'm like, what would it look like if we all stopped doing the things that funders request us to do and they would be forced to change their process? Absolutely. We need to start organizing a little bit more. Mm-hmm. The, the systems have us kind of like competing with one another, right? In this Hunger Games. And, you know, we, we just, we're just fighting with one another for crumbs instead of getting together. I, I, I see more inspiring examples of people actually organizing though like over here in seattle like a bunch of eds of color over 180 of us got together 
and wrote an open letter to the funders in the beginning of the pandemic and said, look, our communities are being disproportionately affected by the pandemic and you need to double, at least double the amount of money that you're giving out. It needs to be over the next five years. It needs to be multi-year, you know, like multi uh, general operating funds. And and they asked the, the, the funders to sign a pledge and several of them did, right? So we had to start doing a much better job organizing. I would love to hear more about that because I don't think we have that level of organization here. And I feel like Seattle is way further ahead in that type of process because I also found out that there was that um, collaborative of executive directors of color um, that are funding sabbaticals for other- I think it might be the same group. Yeah. It might be the Washington BIPOC ED Coalition. And they are really big into protecting, you know, like like really protecting leaders of color from burnout and ensuring- you know, like it, it's great. So yeah, what, that's one of the things that they supported was uh, sabbaticals and, and getting funders to fund that. Um, I think it's great. I think it needs to be everywhere. I think EDs all across the globe needs, not just EDs, but like leaders in general, you know? I think everybody. I, yeah. like, uh, one of our issues, we do a lot of capacity building with teachers around restorative justice and um, trauma-informed services. And one of the our lessons through the pandemic was that um, teachers had a hard time talking about instruction and how to work with their students because their own mental health was so impacted. And then I think about like, I have therapist on staff, the toll that it took on them to do therapy and take care of their own households. And we, as soon as the pandemic was over, in quotation marks, people quickly forgot that there's been people who work through this entire thing, taking on other folks' burden and having their own. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that we've done a very good job just kind of reckoning with the long-term effects of everything we endured over the past several years during the the pandemic, right? And our sector has has borne a a brunt of it because like we really, a lot of us weren't able to take a break because the demands for services were so high, our community needs were so high. So while other professions might be able to take a break or so, a lot of leaders in this sector just could not because Mm -hmm. there's so many people in crises. Mm-hmm. Here. And I am not so sure how many funders are actually paying attention to this and, mm-hmm. and providing resources. I think there are some inspiring examples, again, like uh, the Washington Women's Foundation over here. They created these um, grants, like $100,000 grant rest and repair awards for, for individual Black women. It's like $100,000. Uh, and you can do whatever you want with it. You can use it. To pay That's amazing. Wages. Yeah. For, for Black women leaders in the sector. And I think that is really vital and more and more funders need to start doing that. What do you think of the state of DEI or anti-racism initiatives today? Uh, I think there's lots to work on, right? You know, we don't, we don't just like solve DEI or whatever. Like, so right now I know there's lots of people talking about like the death of DEI and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm just like, whatever we call it, okay? It is systemic injustice. It is like, you know, if you want to come up with a new term for it, that's fine. But the reality is that we have people from marginalized communities who are suffering in this like inequitable system and we need to figure out how to address it. That's like the whole point of our sector, really, right? 
And so you can spend all this time wringing your fingers or, you know, whatever, wringing your hands, being all nervous because DEI is no longer a popular term or whatever. But like, I don't know. It's similar to, I guess, I'm just shooting off the top of my head. It's like the same as people were like, well, the term nonprofit is terrible because why are we defining ourselves by what we're not? Like, why don't we call ourselves a social profit? sector or whatever i'm like i don't I care what literally we call it. never heard that no no that is it's a- all over that's like like all, every few months someone will like oh pop up someone will be like well the biggest issue is that we call ourselves non-profit we need a better name like that's the biggest issue right now that is not the biggest issue okay you we call ourselves whatever we want the issues are like systemic and so I think it's the same with DEI. Like, if you don't like the term DEI, fine, use a different term. But the reality is that we have a whole bunch of injustice right now and we need to tackle it. So let's focus on that. Do you feel like the conversation is a distraction or not even just, but is actually intentionally being utilized to distract from the work that needs to happen? Absolutely. I mean, look at the term woke, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the anti-wokeness and how, how the term woke has been weaponized mm-hmm. for basically anything that conservatives don't like, mm-hmm. right? And, and then instead of us being like, look, whatever, like F you, like we got, we got shit to do. We start debating with them about how woke is, no, like, no. Like we start debating with people as if their opinions are valid in, uh, in this situation. We start both siding these types of, uh, these types of issues. Like, I don't care if you like, don't like woke or not. Like, shut up. Like, we got shit to do. <laughs> Just start working on things, okay? And so don't give, give like all these haters the opportunity to platform their ridiculous views on stuff. This is how we have like anti-vaccine people or flat earthers, you know, or people who like APA, IPA beers or whatever, you know, like. <laughs> or people who prefer Pisces, continue. <laughs> How dare you? I just, <laughs> but the point is, right, we we need to like control the narrative much better. We have not been doing that very well because we let other people control the narratives and and the the the, the parameters that, that we do our work in. And I, I want us to stop. So for example, the DEI stuff, you know, like we need to stop having conversations with people who are deniers of racism. You know, the colorblind people, for example, who are just like, I don't see color. Like, I've kind of stopped arguing with them. Because mm-hmm. I, I remember in the past where I'm like, well, you know, if you're colorblind, it's another form of racism. And have you heard blah, blah, blah. And now I'm just like, you know what? You have not done your homework. You're not even on the same level to have conversation with me and other people who have been thinking about these issues for a long time. We're not here to educate you for free. Like, you're like that one kid who missed all the lectures in college, that one college class, and you come in one day and you start arguing with a professor and everyone else who've been doing their homework. No, sit your ass down. And okay, until you're more knowledgeable, shut up. Like mm-hmm. that's the kind of sort of messaging that we need to have moving forward when it comes to DEI and other conversations. So I don't, I've stopped doing that kind of work a while back. Um, however, where do you think our white allies, and I'm putting allies in quotations as well for the purposes of this conversation. Where do you think our white allies fit in this type of work? Do they? Of course they do. I mean, what 
white folks are still the majority, you know, like they're still the biggest group and with the most power and privilege here. This work is really about them, right? Correcting for the injustices that they've caused or the, the, the privileges they've experienced because of the injustices. So absolutely, they, they have not only a role to play, but like a primary role in addressing racism. And so, yeah. Do they? Do you think though that there it's their role to like the people that we won't deal with, right? Because they're we don't want to do that extra labor. Do you feel like that's where they come in? Absolutely, yeah. Just like if if you if you miss several classes, right, several lectures, well, you go to a friend and be like, hey, I missed several lectures. Can I borrow your notes? You need to do that before you get involved with the main classroom discussion, right? Right. And so. You know, white allies, allies can be that the, the sort of buddy that can actually pull their friend aside who missed the lectures and be like, hey, we actually, you know, I have some time. Let's go. I, I can give you my notes so that you can actually participate and be not. So this actually brings me to one of my questions. What is the biggest mistake do you think that white nonprofit leaders make? You don't have to narrow it down to one, but, you know, what stands yeah. out to you? I think that sometimes people think of DEI or doing this work, anti-racism work, as like spring cleaning, where it's like, oh, it's spring cleaning, we got to do it. Let's make a checklist of all the things we need to do. And it's exhausting, but it's rewarding when the house is all clean and all this stuff. When I'm like, okay, you know, that's good in some ways, but if we're going to talk about real, authentic work, anti-racism work, it's not like spring cleaning. It might be like burning down the whole house and right. then rebuilding it, right? Mm-hmm. From, from the studs up, right? Mm-hmm. You gotta like remove the foundation. And that means certain things. Like what does this actually mean for white leaders? It might mean it's more than just like, oh, how do we increase our women of color salary into like, maybe I need to leave as a mm-hmm. white leader, right? Or maybe I need to, pay, to take a significant salary cut so that women of color can be paid more equitably here. So if you're not willing to give up stuff, then you're not actually doing like deep, meaningful DEI work. So like, I think that that's what it needs like for authentic anti-racism DEI work is you need to be able to willing, be willing to give up power and resources or, or whatever and have like these really honest conversations about that. I think that one of the things I observed in this conversation around DEI and white allyship is that I've seen white leaders show up in mixed spaces ready to advocate for their populations and advocate for more resources for their population. And at the same time, take up space from leaders of color, perpetuate harm and microaggressions in these mixed spaces and not really, but monopolize resources. uh, Similar to your conversation about the classwork and missing all these classes, I don't like all this funding going into DEI work to do an assessment, to hire a consultant, to see what you're doing wrong. So I was like, so you get extra money because you've been fucking up this entire time. Meanwhile, I haven't been fucking up, so I don't have access to that pool of money. <laughs> yes, I call it the the prodigal son effect of like DEI, right? <laughs> That's a Whereas, really good way to describe it. Yes. Right. It's like the people who've been doing DEI work, like leaders of color who basically we exist in this DEI space because everything we do is DEI, is, is anti-racist or, you know, like theoretically, right? 
Um, and then someone who just comes in and is like, oh yeah, we're doing this. And everyone's like, oh, you're amazing. Look at you. Because people love a good redemption story. Mm-hmm. They love a good sort of like comeback, you know, like a comeback underdog type of story. And, and so, yeah, a lot of funding goes to lots of these organizations. And then leaders go on the side, like what? We've been doing this. Like, like give us money. We need to, we need to we're, pa- we're past this now, like funnel work. This has come up a couple of times just in this conversation. Like it boils down to people feeling good about supporting our work, right? And what feels good is the same things that perpetuate the issues within the or within the nonprofit sector. Uh, things like trauma porn. We need to see this redemption story in order to feel good. Like, what do you think that's about? Um. I think some of it is the conditioning that we have been doing among donors and funders, right? Which is like, we condition them to feel like they need to be heroes. And, and we train ourselves. Like fund, fundraisers have been trained. Make sure that you center the donor. Mm-hmm. Make sure that their feelings are being up-centered and all this stuff. Make sure they feel like heroes. Make sure you use the word you at least 28 times in every appeal letter you did this because of you, you know, stuff like that, right? And that is just, it, it's just exhausting. And I think it, it creates these sorts of um, conditionings or thought processes where this is the sort of situation that we get ourselves into. Was there like a final straw for you in the philanthropy relationship that made you be like, that is definitely how I'm going to start speaking out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I I was trying to be very nice and trying not to call out funders or people by name, right? I generally don't do that because I think it's systemic. But right in the beginning of the pandemic, some colleagues wrote to me um, in saying that there are funders who are still requiring them to print out and hand deliver copies of their grant proposals in the middle of a pandemic. And yeah. It was awful, like, because not only were, were these funders' tactics and shenanigans annoying, they were now jeopardizing people's lives. And I had this epiphany where I'm just like, no, you know, like my own comfort in not calling people out or my own like Piscean ability to empathize <laughs> with like not embarrassing people, that has to be outweighed by people's literal lives being jeopardized by the by this assholeism and you know, that funders perpetuate. So I started the hashtag crappy funding practice where I will call out funders by name and have been doing that for the past like five years or so. Where it's like, hey, XYZ Foundation, this is ridiculous. No one has time to do this, you know, hashtag crappy funding practices. And that has kind of shifted my my thinking, which is like, who are we trying to protect here? You know, who are we prioritizing? Whose safety are we prioritizing? This psychological safety of funders or like the actual livelihood and well-being of the people in the sector uh, who are addressing systemic injustice. And so we need to have our, our priorities um, right when we when we do this work. We've talked quite a bit about all of the problems, right? Have you seen anybody change something for the positive? due to your blog well i mean i want to take credit right Mm -hmm. right 
I can't take all the credit, right? Because this is stuff that people have been saying for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and I appreciate that, you know, many people, many leaders have been saying these things over years and years, way before I even came along. Um, you know, but all that being said, there have been funders who are, who are like, yeah, we've switched over to multi-region operating funds. Um, and sometimes they give me credit and I appreciate that. But again, it's probably like lots and lots of leaders telling them this over years and years before I finally came along and, and they started listening. So when you think about the one magic wand question and you can change philanthropy overnight, what would it be? Well, to be honest, I would change progressive leaning philanthropy to be more like conservative leaning philanthropy. Okay. Now, by this, I mean that progressive and conservative funders act very differently. Conservative funders fund like 30 or 40 years at a time. They don't give uh, you know, they don't give a, a fuck whether you spend money on overhead or whatever, as long as you're effective in addressing many of these horrible things that they want to advance, mm-hmm. right? They're like, oh, you love guns? We love guns. You hate immigrants? We also hate immigrants. So here's like $5 million for the next 40 years. Do whatever you want as long as you advance these uh, agenda items that, that we agree on, you know? And progressives are like, well, yeah, we, we like what you're doing, but can you do a logic model? And is this scalable? And we'll give you four cents and for one year. And maybe if you're successful, but you need to report to us. And yeah, like we don't want any of this money to be spent on staffing. Um, yeah, and it's only for one year. So you have to come back and renew. And we're going to have to, you wait 12 months for while we make a decision. And that is that is where progressive funders are and this is and then we wonder why that conservative movements have been running circles around progressive policies and 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 actions you know so that's what i i would say is like we need progressive leaning funders to be a lot more to operate a lot more like conservative funders but with different value sets with progressive values mm-hmm. that's what i would probably say yeah I talk about this quite a bit because that's exactly what's wrong with our politics today. Republicans stick together and support one another no matter what. And then we have Democrats that are now sectoring off and because, you know, so-and-so is not progressive enough and you're too moderate and now we can't unite. First of all, there's an issue with a two-party system to begin with, but if we're going to go with a two-party system, right? Like we are not able to come together enough and are so quick to cancel somebody out. Yeah, we do. There's there's a lot of challenges. I I do think there's some there's there's some really good stuff going on in in the in the sector and in the progressive spaces. There has been a lot of progress that's that's being made. Um, as much as I complain about the Democrats, I mean, like they have been doing some amazing stuff as well. Or at now, least trying to. <laughs> yeah, at least trying to and. You know, like they're actually like saving us from fascism right now. Like this is, uh-huh. it's so I, I do, I think that we need to, to rally, like, like you said, you know, so I don't want to criticize or side too much and kind of fall into that same sort of like <laughs> mentality that we criticize this sort of meta criticism here. Um, and at the same time in our sector, we need to do a way better job of just, yeah, uniting, organizing. And putting aside our differences to really focus on getting some some stuff done. There was this really 
um, interesting study just re- done that I think I saw today that said that we are advocating doing the least public policy and advocacy in the nonprofit sector that we've done in years. I think it's like yeah. 20 years. Yeah. I Do you want to react to that? Uh, it's not surprising. It is just very mm-hmm. sad. And I, I mean, I, I, for years now, I, and I know many other people in our sector have been like, look, we need to fund advocacy. We need to fund voter registration. We need to fund lobbying, whatever we need to do, because like everything that we're doing in the sector is responding to all of these fires that are being set by, you know, at the policy level, by conservative movements and, and leaders, right? And like, that's what we've been doing. And, and we just can't keep doing that anymore. We need mm-hmm. to stop people from setting fires. And that means that we need to start working on these levers of power, like electing more progressive women of color into office, for example, and, and changing the tax code so that rich people are paying their fair share of taxes. And like protecting voting rights. Hundreds of bills have been passed to restrict voting rights across the United States. And our sector's, our sector's response over the past several years has been, man, sorry, that's really not in our wheelhouse. That's like mission creep for us. And I've always been on this, this sort of like, no, everyone in our sector needs to work on protecting voting rights. Like that is not mission creep. It is not mission creep to work on voting rights. Every single nonprofit needs to be, you know, working on voting rights. And so we need to do just, just a way better job with, with advocacy but we also need to be focused around like what kind of advocacy. I would love all this if like the entire sector is like we need to protect abortion rights. You know, mm-hmm. like we need to like go in on these five key areas: abortion rights, voting rights, things like that, and like do a good job at that and stop being apologetic about it. Again, yeah, yeah, I'm just getting tired of us <laughs> constantly being yeah. like having to justify doing these things. Like, oh, you're doing advocacy, yeah. So what? We are doing advocacy. Why the fuck do you think that we're in this line of work? We're trying to address systemic injustice. You don't, you think that we're good, we can just address systemic injustice, but like not actually address the root causes of it? Mm-hmm. How does that even work? What would be the thing that you want folks listening to this to like take away? Like your call to action for folks. My call for action is for people to just be a lot angrier and less nice about it. Right? Our sector has been trained to be nice. We attract nice people. Um, and I think that our sector has become this, this like giant, one giant white moderate that Dr. King warned us about. You know, In his letter from a Birmingham jail, he was like, the biggest threat to justice are not the people like burning crosses and wearing hoods and stuff. It's like the nice people standing on the side saying, well, can we wait a little bit? Can we be a little bit more civil while we do this? Can we all get along and, you know, like stuff like that. And I'm like, that's our entire sector, just being very apologetic. And I want us to get out of that space because things are serious. Mm -hmm. Like the rise of fascism needs to concern all of us in this sector. But we are not, we're just like, no, that's just not what we do. We work with low-income kids. That's all we do. Yes, you do work with low-income kids, but they're going, they're being threatened everywhere by the rise in fascism and the rise in like horrible people winning office and setting aside horrific policies everywhere. You need to care about that. We all need to care about it. 
All right. On that note, it feels kind of weird to ask now, like how, where can people find you online? I'm like, I don't know where to, how to flip it to somebody. <laughs> so where can, people, uh, where can people find you online? Well, nonprofitaf.com is my most sort of main place. I'm also on Instagram. I haven't posted in a while, but um, yeah, Instagram at nonprofitaf and on Twitter or now as it's called X. God. <laughs> at nonprofit as well. See, like that's an example of like, you know, this rise in fascism and horrific right-wing ideologies is this the change in Twitter. It's become a cesspool of just like horrific things mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and bigotry and racism and everything. And we're just like, okay, I guess that's, that's it then. Are we, I'm like checking, are we on Twitter? Yeah. We're not on Twitter. You know? We don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I might, I might get off Twitter. I think it's just become too much. It's really sad because Twitter is like one of the best places to get news and everything. So that's what one of my directors used to say. But mm, yeah, it's interesting. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really enjoyed it, even though you're a Pisces. <laughs> thank you, Betsy. I'm sorry I was just ranting, but I, I do think that there's some really good things about our sector too. Like, don't get me wrong, you know, I love our sector. And I criticize it a lot because I really love it. I really do think that we have the potential to do some incredible work. And we have done things. There's been so many things, like basically every single uh, rights or like justice movements and stuff has involved the nonprofit sector in some way. And so we, we should be very proud of what we have accomplished over the past several decades. And I don't want us to be held back because of our fear of donors or you know, funders or whatever. And I want to stop apologizing and just own how awesome we are and just start getting shit done. I think we can actually leave it on that note. <laughs> if you're enjoying this episode, we have a few upcoming events that will be perfect for you. Join Alternatives and Broken Office Chair on October 5th at Chicago United for Equity for our second Cocktails and Complicity event. Guest speakers Ayoka Samuels and Leslie Honoré from Broken Office Chair Season 1 will join Bessie in discussing the complex dynamics that perpetuate inequality in the nonprofit sector, such as being a woman of color in nonprofit leadership, the nonprofit industrial complex, the intersection of capitalism and philanthropy, and much more. Come enjoy a cocktail, network with nonprofit friends, and engage in these much needed conversations. The link to RSVP will be in the show's notes. Have you been personally impacted by a toxic nonprofit? Do you have a nonprofit horror story you're dying to share? Then join us for Nightmare Before Christmas, an in-person open mic night where nonprofit friends can gather and share horror stories about navigating the nonprofit industrial complex. Come prepared with your favorite story, poem, or song about the terrors of funder site visits, annual appeals, audits, and more. We invite you to share a drink with colleagues and revel in the joys of nonprofit life. The link to RSVP will also be in the show's notes. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. 
You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. If you want to keep up with Bessie, you can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Bessie underscore Alcantara. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director Bessie Alcantara. It's produced, researched, and edited by Catherine Bess and Deanna Phillips. Thanks for listening. <laughs>